Uh, for those of you who are new, yes, my name, my name is David. I'm part of, the, part of the leadership team here in Redeemer. I get the privilege of, of working here full time and leading the team. Um, so it's great to be back. As Stephanie was saying, the last few months, the last three to four months have been something of, of a challenge, as she was saying, with illness and all sorts. But as I say, it's great to be back. Back from honeymoon last week, which was brilliant. So Beth and I um, had a great time. And I just wanted to say, I suppose it would be remiss of me to say at this moment, um, a big thank you, actually, to, to all of you. Um, thankfully, due to the skills of my surgeon and the wonderful NHS, but also your prayers and the prayers of family and friends, prayers of others, um, uh, God's been really good to us. And uh, we just wanted to take this moment to say how overwhelmed we've been by God's goodness to us. And um, I've made a, a great recovery. My health's doing well. I've never been better, probably, is a fair way to put it, which is amazing. Um, I'm sporting a really horrible, um, a really brilliant farmer's tan, which is going to stay like covered up with these long sleeves um, from honeymoon. Um, but we had a great time away. But it's just, it's just really good to be back here with family, with um, church family. Um, and so I'm raring to go. I'm looking forward to, to sharing with you this morning. I'm looking forward to getting back into um, the office with the team this week and all of that. Um, so, yes, thank you very much for all of your prayers. Really appreciate it. Um, I've actually been really encouraged as if I have been back in the office one or two days this week. And I've been really encouraged by a few things. I had the privilege of um, meeting with a couple of leaders in this area who are working in this area. Met with The creative table may have not met, but Stephen and I, had an hour, a brilliant hour, with Father Eugene O'Neill, who's the, he's the priest up in St. Patrick's at the top of the hill, top of the road here. And we had a brilliant hour with him, just learning about the work that he does and the team of priests and his curates. That They have 1,500 people that worship in that church every Sunday, and they've got a parish of 78,000 people. It's one of the biggest parishes in Belfast. So the work that they're doing is, his buzzer went off, or is it buzzer? Um, what is this? The West Wing, circa 1994. His, his mobile phone went off um, uh, several times because he's just such a, such a busy man. But um, it was great to meet him and we were conspiring about some potential things we might be able to do together that involve some fun creativity and, and particularly the creative table. So it's going to be fun to see how that develops. I also met uh, a man who's working with the Methodist Church on setting up a, an ecumenical chaplaincy here in the city. So I suppose in tandem with the, the anticipation of the amount of students that are going to be in this area, but also at Queen's and across the city. So the Methodist Church are trying to set up a chaplaincy that's not just a Methodist chaplaincy, it's ecumenical in a sense. It's pulling on all different denominations, which is really great. So we've got to hear a little bit of the vision of that. Um, so it's been really good to hear that and be encouraging to hear what's going on in this area. I've also been really encouraged to hear about the launch of tables um, and the, the, these new community groups that we've, we've, we've launched. I hope you're in one. If you're not in one, I'd really encourage you to connect with it. It's, it's, one of, it's the primary way that we do community here in Redeemer. And this gathering here today, we sort of think about this as like one big family table and we gather around the table and we share, share bread and wine and we get to um, get together with one another, commune with one another, catch up with one another, worship together, pray together. And so like our tables in, in homes throughout the week are like these little expressions of that. They're little tables that share food together and, and we get to really do life together. So if you're not in one, please do connect with it. And I just want to reiterate just intro night, if you're new, 
connect with that intro night on the 25th of November. I'm going to be hosting it at, uh, at our place in, in my house. You come around for some wine, some cheese. You'll get to know a little bit about Redeemer, what we're trying to do here in this community, and hopefully get to meet some leaders and all of that. So please let me encourage you uh, to connect with that. Today, I'm going to be speaking on the series that we're in at the moment. So again, if you're new, we've been in this series called, I think it's on the, yeah, it's on the screen, Colony of Christ. Colony of Christ. Um, so we've been exploring, every, every Sunday we spend about 30 to 35, 40 minutes, sometimes longer, hopefully not today, um, engaging with the scriptures, engaging with the, the ancient texts and inviting the Spirit of God to somehow illuminate the text and speak to us, that God would speak to us and open our eyes to inform how we might live in the world as followers of Jesus. And that's what we do every week for about 30 to 40 minutes. And that's what I'm gonna do today. We're in the book of Philippians. So let me do a quick brief catch up of of that. I'll set that in a little bit of quick context. Philippians is in the New Testament. It's this letter by St. Paul. Um, He's writing from prison. He's writing a letter to the church in a city called Philippi. Philippi, the church there, was one of the earliest Christian communities um, it was the first Christian community that Paul himself had actually started. He started it himself. He planted it in Eastern Europe. It was in the city of Philippi, and Philippi itself as a city was a Roman colony. It was a colony of the Roman Empire, and it was um, situated in Eastern Macedonia. It was very diverse, a lot of retired soldiers living in Philippi, so it was really known for its patriotic nationalism, and so while Paul was living in that place, starting this church, he came up against an awful lot of resistance from the authorities. Why? Because he was announcing that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Jesus was Lord, he, that Jesus was king of the world. And of course, the Roman Empire was built on the mantra of Pax Romana, that Caesar was Lord. And so he came up against resistance, but he planted that church. His mission work took him on to further a field, further fields, I suppose. But throughout that time, the church in Philippi remained vibrant. It, it remained supportive of Paul. And so Paul finds himself in prison and he's writing this letter back to them. And what has happened is that the church has sent a messenger to, with a financial gift to Paul. They've sent um, some food and Paul's writing back to say thank you. But he's doing more than that in the book of Philippians. He's not just writing a thank you note to his previous church plant to say thank you for the support. He's actually sharing some amazing encouragement for the church uh, that would help them attempt to live somewhat faithfully to this way of Jesus as they live in this hostile, patriotic, nationalist colony of the Roman Empire? How might this small community survive? And so the letter of Philippians is like a series of short vignettes, short essays that are written by Paul around the central theme, the central theme being chapter two, which is a poem. So the letter is these short little essays, vignettes that are written on to elaborate upon this poem that's in the middle, this chapter two poem. And the poem in the middle that it's all based on is this artistic retelling of the Messiah, the story of the Messiah, Jesus, his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation. And you, you got to explore that chapter a few weeks ago. 
And so as I say, the rest of this chapter, I'm sorry, the rest of this letter in Philippians is like a series of essays that Paul's writing to try and explain better that poem. He's trying to share these ideas with how that might actually affect the way they live. And so here's what he's basically trying to tell them, Redeemer. He's, Paul is, in Philippians, he's basically saying this, that you should see your story and he would, if he was here today, he would share this with us in Redeemer. We should see our story and our individual stories, your stories individually, as lived expressions of the Jesus story. That in a way, your story is an embodiment of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That you're giving an animation to the reality of Jesus, that you are Jesus in the world, that you're little disciples of Jesus living out in the world in time and place. So he was telling these people, you're like little Jesus living out the Jesus story in Philippi. And so if he was here today, he'd be saying to us, Redeemer, you're like little Jesus living out the Jesus story with the Jesus values and the Jesus way of loving your neighbor and turning the other cheek and all of it in Belfast in 2018. So that's the big idea. Let's, let's move on. What we're gonna do today is we're going to look at one of the little essays, one of the little portions that comment on this big letter, comment on this big poem. And so we're looking at Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 to 11. That's where we're going to go today. I'm going to read it from the, a translation that will come up on the screen. It's the kingdom, hopefully it'll come up on the screen. It's the kingdom New Testament uh, translation, which is actually written by N.T. Wright. I'm going to read from that. Um, if you want to follow along in the ESV, which is in front of you, or your own Bible, please do. But I'm going to read this portion, Philippians 3, 1 to 11, from the New Kingdom, the Kingdom New Testament translation, says this, so then, my dear family, it comes down to this, celebrate in the Lord, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you, and it's safe for you. Watch out for the dogs, for the bad works people, watch out for the mutilation party, the circumcision you see is actually us, those who worship God by the Spirit and boast in King Jesus and refuse to trust in the flesh. Mind you, I've got a reason to trust in the flesh. If anyone thinks they've got a reason to trust in the flesh, I've got more. Circumcised on the eighth day. Race, Israelite. Tribe, Benjamin. Descent, Hebrew, through and through. Torah observance, a Pharisee. Zealous, well, I persecuted the church. Official status under the law, blameless. Does that sound like my account was well in the credits? Well, maybe, but whatever I had written in on the prophet side, I calculated it instead as loss because of the Messiah. Yes, I know that's weird, but there's more. I calculate everything as loss because knowing King Jesus as my Lord is worth far more than everything else put together. In fact, because of the Messiah, I've suffered the loss of everything and I calculate it as trash so that my prophet may be the Messiah and that I may be discovered in him. Not having my own covenant status defined by the Torah, but the status which comes through the Messiah's faithfulness, the covenant status from God, which is given by faith. This means knowing him, knowing the power of his resurrection, knowing the partnership of his sufferings, 
It means sharing the form and pattern of his death so that somehow I may arrive at the final resurrection from the dead. That's the little essay, the little vignette we're going to look at today. So what's going on in this text? What is really going on here? Let me, let me help us out, hopefully. Firstly, there's a problem that Paul is addressing. What's the problem? Here's the problem. The problem is there's a group within the community that see themselves as Jewish. And despite following Jesus, they want all of the non-Jewish people who also follow Jesus in the community to become, also become full, fully Jewish. And it's really annoying, Paul. It's annoying, Paul, for two reasons. Well, the big reason is that they just don't understand the gospel. They don't understand what God's really doing in King Jesus. I think the second thing probably that's annoying Paul is that those people probably remind him of himself. Because if you know the story of Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. He was the zealot persecutor. He was a passionate, zealot, religious, Jewish leader who persecuted Christians. So he's being reminded of his own story in a way. But here, his essay, his vin- this vignette, this little passage is trying to speak to this problem of all of them, of this misunderstanding of what God's actually doing. God's not trying to make Judaism better. God's doing something so much more. And Paul's trying to paint a picture of that and what it means to be in Jesus as King and Messiah for the whole world. So here's my first point. God is going everywhere. That's the first point. God is going everywhere. So the Jewish view of the world was this. They actually believed in resurrection. The Jewish hope is resurrection. The Jewish hope is resurrection. Our hope is resurrection. The Jewish hope is resurrection. They hope that God would save the world and put it back together. That he brings shalom and peace. But the problem I guess, as those who follow Jesus, is that the Jewish view of God is somewhat narrow. It's somewhat based on this religious observance of the law, plus being a Jew, the ethnicity, the ethnic identity of being a Jew. So basically, here's it. To be the people of God, you had to be born in the right family, you'd be a Jew, and you had to follow the rules, observe the law. And Paul's saying, no, 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 that's not what's going on anymore. God's going global. He's trying to explain that this King Jesus story, the Messiah has changed the game entirely. Paul's view is not, we've got a better religion, a better Judaism. Paul's claim is that God is acting in Jesus to save the whole world. And through his death and through his resurrection, he's gonna transform the definition of what it means to be the people of God. You don't have to observe the law and be a Jew to be in this big family of God, to be adopted into God's family. And so Paul's saying, watch out for the dogs, watch out for the good works people, watch out for the mutilators. He's saying, anyone who says you must be circumcised, anyone who says you must follow the law of Moses, anything who says you must be marked out in these ways, they, Paul says, are leading you away from the gospel. They're leading you away from Jesus. They're leading you away from the thing that God's doing. The thing that God's doing is God's going everywhere. God's going everywhere. And so they're missing this point. Paul's warning these people, the church at Philippi, sorry, to look out for these people. And he's calling them, he called them, he's not holding back here. He called them dogs, he called them the mutilators. 
because of their obsession with circumcision. He called them the bad works people. Um, He's turned, uh, Jewish scholars would have often referred to Gentiles as dogs. Paul has turned that term back on them. He's really not holding back with his critique of people who are trying to lead, in fact, misunderstand what God's actually doing in the world. God's doing something so much bigger. But Paul goes further. He's saying something really controversial. He's saying this, that those who worship by the Spirit of God, the glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, they, he uses the term, we are the circumcision. We are the family of God. The family of God, basically, the new definition of what it means to be the family of God is those who worship by the Spirit and glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in put no confidence in the flesh. And so it's not by family name. It's not by keeping the rules. It's not by these physical marks on your body. It's marked out by what the Old Testament prophets call a circumcision of the heart. Something has gone on internally, a devotion, a radical faith in God. And the tent, the family of God has been enlarged beyond the ethnic Jewish people. God's going everywhere. God's doing a new thing in the world everybody's welcome. And the mark of this new people is the spirit of God in Christ. They were gonna, this new family were gonna inherit all the promises that were for Israel. This new family were gonna inherit. And it reminds us of the words that God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12 when he said that you will be a father of many nations. And so when we read through the Psalms as well, we see God this global project of God hinted at, that he will have the nations for himself. It was not just going to be one nation, but it was going to be the whole world. He's going global and everyone's invited. The old rules don't work anymore. So Redeemer, for us, that's the story we're in today. We're in that same story. We're part of the good news of what God's doing in the world, this new thing. And in Christ, by the Spirit, worshiping in the Spirit, we are the family of God. So, what are the new rules? What's going on next? The game has changed. The story's gone global. Paul helps reframe the story. And he tells the Philippian church, no need to play by the old rules. Because if anybody, and this is what the passage is is talking about, if anybody could play by the old rules, Paul could play by the old rules. Remember who's writing this letter? It's Paul. Paul was no slouch. His credentials were really impressive. His feats, really impressive. His resume, really impressive. His education, immaculate. His standing in the community, impeccable. I mean, if Paul had a social media presence, I actually looked him up on Twitter. Is he on Twitter? I don't know, Mike, have you got the slide there? Yeah, Paul has a Twitter account, apparently. Saul of Tarsus. But that version doesn't really have many followers, like 208 So it's not really like a true reflection of my point. But if Paul did have a presence online today and he wanted to fill out his his little profile and he'd have millions of followers and he'd have all the hashtags and all of the kudos and all of the status, he would be in the in crowd and he would have impressed in his day all of his contemporaries in the religious world. He would have ticked 
all the boxes of the old rules of the old way of thinking. Remember what we read, circumcised on the eighth day, check. Of the people of Israel, check. Of the tribe of Benjamin, check. A Hebrew of Hebrews, check. As for the law, a Pharisee, check, top dog. As to zeal, he persecuted the church. As to righteousness, totally blameless. Paul was a baller. If anyone was a top Jew, if anyone was elite, it was Paul. Before meeting Jesus, he had it. He was harsh. He was winning. He was a hustler. He had it. Every privilege. And yet here he is, post-encountering the Christ, and he's saying God isn't interested in any of this. The old rules don't apply anymore. The remarkable thing about this is that he uses a metaphor to try and describe, trying to help understand just how the shift has happened. Do you want to know the metaphor that he uses to try to compare this old way of thinking, the old way of trying to attain privilege and status and impress yourself into the family of God and into God's love? Here is the metaphor that Paul uses. You ready for it? You ready? A spreadsheet. Yeah, I mean, a spreadsheet. I'm talking Microsoft Excel. I mean, you didn't, I'm I'm telling you, you're hearing me right, Microsoft Excel. He uses something as uninteresting as a spreadsheet. Now, hold on. I, I know some of you really love a spreadsheet. I think they're slightly uninteresting, not looking at you, Matt Stewart. Um... Some of you pretend to be really cool, but you've got your whole lives on a spreadsheet. I know you've got your shopping list on a spreadsheet. You've got your finances on a spreadsheet. You've got your weekly schedules and your savings on a spreadsheet. You've got your football fantasy stats. Some of you even have like your favorite animals listed by cuteness on a spreadsheet. You love spreadsheets, but spreadsheets generally aren't that interesting. And little did you know that Paul, this literary giant of the last 2,000 years, this masterful orator really digged spreadsheets because what he does in this passage, in this little passage that we've read, is he basically makes a profit and loss sheet, gains and losses, two columns. But here's the thing, instead of putting all that resume, all that kudos, all that street cred that he had in the gain column, he puts it in the loss column. Crazy, crazy, right? Quickly, I'll just read it. He says in verse four, I'll read this from the ESV version, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day a people of, Israel, uh, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, as the uh, zeal a persecutor, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Verse seven, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss. I mean, Paul has got an, a lot going for him, but he doesn't really see it that way. Why is he putting all of that status, education, his family background, his kudos, Why is he using a spreadsheet metaphor and why is he putting it all in the loss column? Why is he summing up everything that he is apparently valuable and counts? Why is he putting it in the loss column? All the things that his contemporaries would have viewed as prestigious and sought after in the loss column. Well, because I think this is what he's getting at. There's something going on because he puts something else against it all in the gain column and that is one thing. What is the thing that Paul puts in the gain column? The one thing that Paul puts in the gain column against everything else is this 
the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. One thing. As I've said, Paul's a Jew. He was in the elite. If there was time, person of the year, top 100, he was in it. And yet, here he is saying that everything else I count as a loss compared to knowing who? The crucified criminal from Nazareth, the rebel rabbi who got executed by the empire. And Paul, this elite Jew, this leader, this zealot, he compares everything in his life as a loss compared to knowing Christ. I mean, it's, it's mind-blowing. I mean, I don't know where you're at today with your faith. I don't know if you identify as Christian in this room or if you feel like you would identify as an atheist or you're agnostic or you've got doubts about God or about the scriptures or about Jesus, but you've got to recognize, and scholars would say this, something happened to that zealot Saul of Tarsus in the first century that was utterly remarkable. Something went on. Something happened to Paul when you read his writings. He is radical in his allegiance to Jesus. And he goes on further. He goes on further, not just putting it all in the loss column, but he says this, that for the sake of Jesus, he actually suffered all that loss. He lost his kudos and his cred by following Jesus. And yet, all the kudos and cred that he'd built up, it now counts as, and he uses a Greek word, rubbish or filth or dung, skubalon. Or if I was really to use the term that Paul used, well, I can't really use it because it's quite offensive and the leaders here would probably kick the skubalon right out of me. <laughs> Sorry, I had this. You see what, yeah. All the cred, he said, is skubalon, rubbish, trash, dung, filth, compared to knowing Jesus. It's all to be thrown away. It's all rubbish compared to knowing Christ as master and friend. Quite amazing. That's the second point. God is going everywhere is the first. And knowing Jesus is everything is the second. What does Paul really mean? Knowing the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus is gain. What does he mean? Well, here's what he means. He means that what he doesn't mean is that he knows about Jesus facts about Jesus, he's not talking about that. That's not in the Greek. He's talking about a knowing that is personal, that is intimate. It's an experience of Christ that he is counting above all else. And it is so profound, as we've said, he calls everything else shkubalong or rubbish. Michael Edward Regan was the adopted son of Ronald Regan, the 40th president of the United States. 40. Was that four ago, four or five ago? Um, at the funeral of his father in 2004, Michael Regan opened his address with these words. He said, good evening, I'm a Mike Regan. You knew my father as governor. You knew my father as president, but I knew him as dad. And there's something going on in that kind of knowing that is different when it's close and intimate and personal. It's not at a distance. It's not knowing about someone. We know people and we know about people. 
And what Paul is saying in this passage, in this little vignette in Philippians, is a knowing that is intimate, nearly like the knowing a husband would have of his wife, or the most intimate relationships that you can think of. So Redeemer, to be a Christian today, to follow the way of Jesus, this sounds really, really simple. We can confuse Christian identity and what it's all about and what church is all about, but it's as simple as this. It's about knowing Jesus. If you're struggling with Christianity today, just get to know Jesus. Start by looking at his life and inviting him in. To know Psalm 23 is not the same as knowing the shepherd of Psalm 23. It's different. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes a little beautiful book on Advent. It's actually called God in the Manger. I recommend it. We're going to use it in a few weeks. But he says this, while it is good that we seek to know the Holy One, it is probably not so good to presume that we have ever completed the task, which just means that we get to know the Holy One. We get to know Christ, but we'll never exhaust the knowing that there is of Christ Paul is talking about a knowing that is making Jesus the treasure himself. Jesus is not some means to some vision of the world. He's not a stepping stone to this grand big project, albeit the project amazing. Paul is saying that it's the knowing of Jesus is the end. Or in other words, Jesus is the treasure. He is, the knowing of Jesus is the point and he patterns his life after Jesus. That's the heart of Paul. It's the heart of Paul to know Jesus. It's the heart of the gospel to know Jesus. It sort of reminds us of Jesus' own words, in fact. You remember the parables in, in Matthew 13? Do you remember the one where the man discovers treasure in a field, and then he covers it up, and then in his joy, he goes and he sells all he has to buy the field? Or do you remember the parable about the merchant in search of fine pearls who finds the pearl of great value, goes and sells all they have and comes back to buy the pearl of great value? It's the same kind of theme of treasuring one thing above all else that Paul's getting at and it's through Jesus' teaching as well. Paul, this apostle in the writing from prison uh, is about the one thing. He's about the one Lord. He's about the relationship he has with his Messiah, his friend Jesus. There's a beautiful quote by John Piper that says this, but to enjoy him, we must know him. Seeing is savoring. If he becomes a blurry, vague fog, we may be intrigued for a season but we will not be stunned with joy when the fog, as when the fog clears and you find yourself on the brink of a vast precipice. Something about knowing Jesus, something about knowing Jesus being everything. So for those today, as we reflect on some of this, I've been thinking about some of the ways that this interacts with us. For some of us, we're playing by the old rules. We're playing by the rules of our society. What's in our gain column? And what's in our loss column? You know, what comes to mind? Sometimes we can forget the intensity or the passion of what it looks like to be following Jesus. And we get lost in the thick, dark woods of 
apathy or a religious ritual. And here we see Paul in his writings describing a life that is just set on fire by this good news of the gospel of Jesus and knowing Jesus. And he would remind us everything else is scubalong compared to knowing Jesus. What are the ways that our society tries to measure us up? What are the ways that we try to measure us ourselves up? What's the street cred that we lean into for, for all of our worth and identity? What matters most today in 21st century Belfast or the Western world? What matters most in the boardrooms? What matters most in the political chambers? What matters most in the religious fraternities? What matters most on the street or in the creative circles or in the, in the academy? What gives us the kudos today? Start thinking about those things. Is that the letters after our name, the family we're born into? Was it the parties that we get invited to? The tables that we get to sit around? The money that we earn? The titles, the rewards, the recognition, the postcode that we live in? The people that we're dating or associated with? The likes that we get on Instagram? The followers we have online? All of these things that apparently really count and matter? And can we account them as trash, as scubalong compared to knowing Jesus? All of these identities trying to define us and yet Paul is reminding us as followers of the way, it doesn't come close to comparing to Jesus. It's not even close. It's astounding what Paul is saying. There's no doubt that following Jesus, there's a sacrifice involved. And Paul knew all too well the sacrifice involved that the cred that he once leaned into was just worthless and no more because of Jesus. And like Jesus, the humility of, that Jesus desired, it's described, you know in that central poem in chapter two of Philippians, it talks about Jesus and his humility. Well, in, in this vignette that Paul talks about, he talks about modeling that humility himself, losing that kudos, losing his cred, sacrifice, ultimately dying to self and letting go of these identities that he used to cling to. He's given it all up. He's called it filth in comparison to knowing Jesus, to become a servant of Jesus in the hope that he will walk through death into resurrection. Maybe that's some thoughts to think of. Or maybe today, it's not the kudos, it's not the identity, but it's more like you're struggling with faith in its entirety today. And maybe what it means to be a Christian, as I've said, and I want to remind you that what, what, what matters is knowing Jesus, the knowledge of him in your life. And what springs up from that is this beautiful allegiance of faith to him and a commitment to live his way in the world, to be part of a colony of Christ. There's so many of us that are looking for answers. So many podcasts I listen to, so many books I read, so many people I talk to, they're look, looking for answers. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian today? What does it mean to be spiritual? And that's so often this religious framework or this framework that seeks to, 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 to develop self or whatever it may be is just often void of an experience of the risen Christ in our lives. And it's simple. It's an invitation today to us all. Dallas Willard says this, to know Christ in the modern world is to know him in your world right now. To know him in your world right now is simply to live interactively with him where you are 
in your daily activities. That's it. That's the spiritual life in Christ. So to those today you're confused about life or disappointed about life, confused about the world or about the state of the world or even about church, what it means, I want to encourage you in this. Just forget it all and start and end with knowing Jesus. Just start getting to know Jesus. Just just start there. And if that's all you do, that's it. That's the game. That's it. Take him up on the offer today. Invite him into your daily activities. Just give him your yes. That's all you have. Invite his presence into your life. Maybe for some of you today, it's not just you're struggling with faith, but you're struggling with suffering. Struggling with the sufferings of this world. Towards the end of this passage in chapter three, Paul talks about knowing Christ in his death and in his resurrection. He talks about, he uses the language of sharing in the sufferings of Christ and becoming like him. And so not only does Paul model this humility of Christ, but he actually models a pattern of walking through death. And some of us today, life just feels and tastes like death. And I wanna encourage you today, if you're suffering, and I know some of you in this room are experiencing profound suffering, that you are walking each step in the very footprints of Jesus, that you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And in the midst of that, you have the one with you who walked through it all. You have the one who walked through the grave into resurrected life and he is with you. And he invites you to know him and the comfort of his presence with you. In fact, I would say, if we haven't got to know Christ in the suffering and in the the darker days of our lives, perhaps we just haven't experienced all that Christ is. There's something precious about this connection we have with Christ, the suffering servant in our sufferings. And for those of you today, maybe you're without hope. I wanna say this, that there is hope. There is hope on the other side of suffering, on the other side of death, on the other side of that brick wall that you keep hitting yourself up against. There is resurrection. There is healing. There is wholeness. There is this new creation project that God has begun and it is gone global And if you are in Christ, you are part of that project. You're partnering with him. God is committed to your resurrection. Your suffering is not wasted if you have faith in the faithful one. Your suffering is an active participation in the life of Jesus in this world. This isn't the last point I wanna bring and I'd love to do it as we transition in closing to the table. And we've talked about God going everywhere. We've talked about knowing Jesus is everything. And I wanna just say that the last big point of this passage is that the invitation is for everyone. The invitation to be part of this thing that God's doing in the world, the invitation to know Christ, no matter what's going on with us, it's for everyone. See, the beauty of the gospel is it's not elite. It's not exclusive. 
It's not another thing on that list in the resume. It's not restricted to just those in the in crowd. No matter what your record is, no matter who your family are, no matter your ethnicity, you can know Jesus today. You can know him as your master, as your teacher, as your Lord, as your savior, as a friend. Jesus is not limited edition. He's not exclusive. He is accessible for everyone. This is what the, the crowd at the start of this passage were confusing. They thought that Jesus was just, that, that God's project was just for them and God is going global and he invites everyone in. So today, Redeemer, no matter who you are, there is an open and divine invitation to knowing Jesus. Just think about that for one second. Just think about that for one second. Think about what change has taken place. The invitation to know Jesus is for everyone. It is for everyone. He's not just for the white people. He's not just the God of the black people. He's not just the God of the straight people. He's not just the God of the gay people. He's not just the God of the English-speaking people or the conservative people or the liberal people. He's not just the God of the young or the God of the old. He's not just the God of the rich or the God of the poor or the God of the educated. He is not restricted from anyone. No restriction. He is available to all. And the desire of Christ today is for you no matter who you are, to be in relationship with him and to know him. His posture toward you today is to welcome you into his family. He's constantly welcoming and inviting and wooing you into communion with him. Let's stand.